Welcome to the Smart Money Tribe podcast. I'm your host, RSA. I'm the founder of smartmoneyafrica.org, a financial education platform tailored to the African millennial woman. But I'm probably best known as the author of two best-selling personal finance books, The Smart Money Woman and The Smart Money Tribe. I love having money conversations that encourage African women to think bigger and become the chief financial officers of their own personal economies. This podcast is a weekly show that will focus on powerful conversations, stories, and practical lessons that teach African millennial women how to make money, keep money, and grow money. Hi, bodies. Hope you had a great week. So last week, I realized something that I wanted to share. So in the last few months, I feel like I've been dealing with a lot of obstacles, trying to solve problems in my business, and I've gotten bogged down with all the many failures, all the many problems. And even if I felt like I was overcoming those obstacles, in a way, they were kind of overcoming me because I realized that I no longer was excited about my goals. I was just bogged down with the day-to-day tasks. And I realized something. Actually, my best friend told me this. She was like, I say, you're being ungraceful right now. Um, But it hits me that I wasn't excited about my goals anymore. I wasn't thinking big. I had allowed the problems to kind of make me start second guessing myself or make me start taking decisions from a fearful place, which obviously isn't good. So I've decided to bring a renewed attitude to my work life in the coming weeks. Go big or go home. Be excited about everything that you're working on. Fall in love with the process. Find joy in the process. Anyway, I just thought I should share that. That is going to be my approach for the next few weeks. Um, And I hope it's your approach too. And in the spirit of thinking bigger, my next guest is Zeze Oraiki Sao. Oh my God, I love her so much. She is a big thinker. Zeze Oraiki Sao is an entrepreneur. She's an influential speaker and the founder of Malay. Malay is Africa's first global luxury fragrance and body care range. Zaza and I met when we were 10 years old, Igbenadian Education Center. I see massive, yay! Um, And she left after GSS3, she moved to England, and we kind of reconnected again when we were in university and kind of built our relationship from there. Zeze is one of those people that were entrepreneurs before it was cool to be an entrepreneur. She has started all kinds of businesses, doing nails, um, doing all kinds of different things when we were in university. So it all kind of makes sense now. Now, when you talk about Malay, right? Malay is a brand that she started in South Africa. So she's a Nigerian girl who lived in England and then moved to South Africa um, after university and started this. Um, brand called Malay. It was in a huge luxury store in Hyde Park Mall. Um, It's been at Harvey Nichols in London. So she's done really well for herself. So put this in perspective. This is a Nigerian girl who didn't build this brand originally in Nigeria. She took it to South Africa, built it there and has now taken to the UK. It's a truly global brand. Um, It reminds me of Jo Malone. um, And I love the fact that it's such a high quality high-value product, and it is made by a Nigerian. So in this conversation, we talk about everything from building her business to our shared experiences as single mothers, um, obstacles that we face in business, obstacles that she's had to overcome, um, the importance of staying in your lane when it comes to business and not being bogged down with what other people are doing um, in their own businesses. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. She's a truly brilliant, phenomenal mind. Enjoy. Hi, Zaza. Hey. I'm so excited that you're on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yes. So you guys, Zaza and I have known each other since we were really little in secondary school. I think we were 10 years old. Yeah. And... We were both in Ignatian Education Center. I see. I see. But then Zeta left after I think GS two or GS three. I can't remember. GS three. GS three. Yeah. GS three, and then 
we met again and started hanging out um, when we're in England. So during uni days, and she's done so many amazing things. She built this brand called Malay. And I remember going to South Africa. This is one of my favorite stories. Oh my God. <laughs> going to South Africa um, one time for work. And I had to go to this mall called Hyde Park Mall. It's like this really fancy, think Harvey Nichols type um, mall. I call it a rich people's mall because I had to go there to pick up something for a client, for HNI. And I'm walking past and I see this Malay store. And I know from Facebook that my friend Zeze owns a brand called Malay. And I was in shock. Like it looked like a Joe Malone store. And I walk in and I'm like, oh my God. So I'm in my 20s and I think, I don't know anyone who has, you know, has built such a huge business already to have a store that looks like, you know, Joe Malone in our 20s. Um, so it was like a big, proud moment for me. And I just it was just so inspiring, like to see this Nigerian girl have built this brand in South Africa. So it was it was like a double inspiring moment oh, a pan-african you. brand that you know had become so big so yay thank um, you so maybe start by introducing yourself um what you do and telling us you know how you started malay um i, I guess the easiest uh, description i'm zazariaki sal um, I wear several hats now. I'm an entrepreneur. I founded Malay Natural Science, which is Africa's first global luxury fragrance and body care brand. Um, I'm also considered a beauty and cosmetics industry expert. Um, I contribute to, um, I guess, beauty industry and insider news. I write a column for a trade magazine uh, focused on the African beauty and cosmetics market, contribute to a number of conferences. I sit on the advisory board of the Cosmetics Global Summit. Um, I also um, run a small brand consultancy um, with the hopes that I'm able to usher in more African businesses in the luxury space into the global marketplace um, I also um, teach a guest lecturing spot at Insec Business School on entrepreneurship, startup marketing and research strategies, as well as luxury brand innovation. Um, and finally, I uh, mm -hmm. started running the podcast Third Culture Africans um, at the start of the year, which is sharing stories of um, Africans across the globe who are creating um, businesses that are ultimately shifting the needle on our culture as Africans on a global landscape. So I think that would be a brief introduction about me. Um, I think I've earned my stripes over the years being featured in Yes, you have. Everything from CNN down to um, the Daily Mail, Oprah Magazine, um, and I recently just took up uh, some digital real estate with my own website, uh, zezaonline.com, so zedizedionline.com, where I try and share everything from, you know, my lifestyle to motherhood journey, podcast episodes, down to sort of beauty industry insights. So it's a resource that I think, actually, to be fair, you encouraged me to do it, um, because you felt like <laughs> I remember yeah. having, yeah, yeah, we had like an hour long conversation where you were sharing enough um, about what I know. Um, and so I, I kind of pulled my socks up and, and decided to um, create the site. So, yeah, that's a resource out there. I Do you know, because I have this thing with my friends where I get really annoyed when people are doing such amazing things and they're not talking about it. And they because they're so shy or is the word shy? Because they're so reserved, right? Um, they don't realize the power or the impact that their stories have. And I think Zeza is one of those people. 
like I would say in personal circles, shy is not necessarily what I am. Um, but I think from a business perspective, um, for the longest of times, you know, you rightfully pointed, I started, you know, Malay in my 20s. I was 23 when I started the business. None of my peers were considering entrepreneurship. Everyone was working jobs. Um, and I think when I started, I had levels of insecurities over, because in 2009, to be fair, entrepreneurship isn't what it is today. Um, mm. It was uncool. It was considered the thing people did who weren't serious. Um, and so I always felt like I had to prove um, yourself, myself and my successes. You know, when you run a business, like, you know, in hindsight, yes, you get the opportunity to sit back and, and count your blessings as it were. But while you're going through it though, it, it doesn't feel that way because it's, it's almost Jekyll and Hyde. One minute, here's a glorious experience. For instance, the CNN interview, um, you know, I moved into my office at the time in, you know, 24 hours for that interview um, wow. because, you know, here was a pressure point for me to to turn up as a, you know, serious business person with an office. But prior to that, I'd been comfortably working off of my dining table. Um, <laughs> and for that interview, I only curled literally the front and sides of my hair the back of my hair, if someone saw the back, it was like matted and straight in the back. So tell me about raising, you know, capital for Malay, right? So lots of young girls, they have ideas, they want to, you know, put them out in the world, they want to execute, but they complain about, you know, lack of access to capital, especially in this part of the world. But you did, you had this idea to start, mm -hmm. um, um, a beauty business mm -hmm. and you were doing it in a foreign country mm -hmm. <laughs> because obviously it was not the UK and it was not England. Yeah. So you were new in South Africa. How did you raise the financing to build um, Malay? So, you know, I, I'm of the firm belief that, you know, friends and family money is, is, is good money. Um, and so I raised, I, I used, you know, my savings, um, and then I raised the rest of the money with, with friends and family. Um, and, you know, I, I have no, no regrets about that because I think, um, if I had taken out a loan or if I had done it slightly yeah. differently, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't think I would. And look, to be fair, you still have pressure from your friends and family, right? But the good thing is that, you yeah. know, no one is, no one is going to stop talking to you. Um, and I think by and large, when friends and family invest in, you know, early stage businesses, which, you know, everyone would call seed capital today, um, you know, there's a huge amount of that that's just based on goodwill and them knowing you as a person and them taking a punt on you and your future, which I think, yeah. you know, by and large investors or institutions um, don't have that context. And so, you know, I wasn't really versed in, and I was lucky to have friends and family that could invest um, in the mm. beginning. Um, and, you know, I always say when it's I, 100%, 100%. Mm. And when, when I'm asked the question, you know, and I think as women, we sometimes feel a, a certain level of guilt for having that as an option, you know, and to be honest, money or having a, a, a stable financial situation in any business that's one of the factors that make businesses. Um, and so mm. whether it comes from your father, your, your husband, you know, your, your parents, um, your siblings, um, that's an advantage that, you know, you should be proud of because that, that safety net really makes the difference to, to how you can build a business in the early days. That's amazing. Um, so what would you say your biggest challenges were starting a beauty business in the height of a recession um, in Africa? Because I, I I always tell people that I think that doing business in Africa is a different kettle of fish. It comes with its own unique um, obstacles and circumstances. So what would you say your biggest um, challenges were with building this business? Um, I'm still facing challenges even today while still trying to build it. Um, 
I, I don't think the challenges ever stop. Um, I think some of the early challenges in the beginning um, was getting into a market that, you know, I didn't necessarily have the finances to compete in the same way historically other bigger brands or other brands existing were competing in. Um, so I had to find unique ways of being heard and being seen. Um, and so I, you know, sold my story um, because, you know, I didn't have to pay for the advertisement in magazines, etc. cetera. Um, and a friend of mine kindly pointed out to me how unique you know, I was at the time a 20 something year old black girl who wasn't South African, but who was building a global brand. Um, and so I, I couldn't afford to advertise my products in magazines, but magazines were happy to profile me and my entrepreneurial journey and my story. So I think in the beginning, it was finding ways that I could promote myself and promote my business um, that gave me the awareness and the reach that I needed um, without having the budget. And then I think that's almost like a, a constant challenge because, you know, the business is still self-funded. Um, I still haven't raised, you know, external capital. Um, yeah. And so that's that's a, a constant um, within the journey. But what it does do is, you know, I'm... I'm a bit of a geek in the sense that I love learning and it it's also forces me to build skills that are worth owning along the way that otherwise would require a budget for so you know I I shoot yeah, a lot because of you quite a lot and you know to put it in context right again Nigerian girl who grows up in Nigeria to a point moves to the UK does your education there, moves to South Africa and starts this business. So I think a lot of people need to understand, you know, that mindset and then even the pivots that you've had to do um, in the course of building this business because you were stocked in Harvey Nichols. Yeah. So we've, you know, we've done Harvey Nichols. We've done travel retail with um, South African Airways. So being available in the duty-free cart and the magazines on the planes, you know, working with Amazon and, and people like that. So I think there's always been a pioneering aspect of what, what I've done with Malay. When, when you see a brand on those kinds of platforms, right? And yeah. when you see or experience the Malay, Malay brand, you would think that they're like billionaire investors involved, right? Because you've bootstrapped, but you found a way to um, align with global platforms um, that may, have made the brand, you know, huge. Yeah, I, I think what I'm good at and what I learned to be good at is building the business around my strengths. Um, there are things that I know I'm not great at. Um, I have an eye for design. I have an eye for you know, being able to to extrapolate and and see the potential and opportunities in things, um, and so I, I've I've built the business around that. Now, at different points in time, time and place, and having a great product, um, and ensuring that the quality and the consistency of that gives the merit required to be in those places. For me, that's just my base standard of, you know, execution. And I think, yes, having the product is great, but ensuring that I have a world-class product that is competitive for what the real marketplace is and, and not what I'm hoping to kind of get away with has always been my focus. Um, because there was also a political statement around my journey with Malay, um, which was very much, you know, people also need to see that we can export luxury out of the continent. And mm. I think it was because I had so many people tell me no in the beginning, <laughs> it, it, it almost kind of fueled me because I, I just used to think, but why is this assumption that you know, it's not possible. Why is there, why is it that, you know, and, and I remember having meetings and people going, but, you know, clearly you're not going to be able to do this. You know, I'm not a middle-aged white man 
with <laughs> lots of money. And yeah. I think I was so determined to prove that narrative wrong and to actually have an end product that meant, and for a long time, actually, people didn't believe that Malay was black, African. female, African. Yeah. So maybe something we need to actually discuss, right, is, you know, during the course of, you know, building this business, right, how have you been able to negotiate like contracts and like find ways to increase your compensation? Because I can imagine the conversations with people like Harvey Nichols and Amazon, those would be difficult conversations. Those would be hard yeah. conversations. And, and take a while, take a lot of resilience. Yeah, but it took me it took me a year of constantly emailing, and you know the the more structured retail systems are different from the African structure. Um, it took me a year mm. um, with Harvey Nichols. It took me about eighteen months to get my store in Hyde Park. So I was the wow. first black owned African brand to ever have a store in Hyde Park Mall. Um, wow. Now, again, as a non-South African, that says something. <laughs> but I think I, I set my cool. mind. Yeah, I had set my mind. It was almost like, well, you're not allowed here. And in my mind, I was like, but why can't why can't I be there? So I must be there just because you've told me I can't. And I, and I remember the first um, meeting I had with with um, you know the the owners of the, of the mall, um, or the, or the management of the mall, and it was very much well, you know, you can't be here type of thing. And I walked away from that meeting going, "You wait and see. You will watch me open this store, and you come and drink my champagne, and you know, and there's nothing you're going to be able to do about it." And and it was a Isn't fight. They they outright just say we don't want black people, or they make the criteria so high or so hard um, to reach well, that it kind of disqualifies a few people. I, I think because there's so much lack of information and lack of sharing, and also I think there's also people create a barrier in their minds, right? Because you haven't seen someone else do it. So somehow, you know, you can't do it. But I think in my mind, you know, I, I could have gone to Santon, um, which is much bigger, so much more international, but I felt like Santon was so huge, um, would require so much, so much work. Um, Hyde Park was so much more manageable and was very much about tapping into the local market. Um, and I felt strongly about wanting to be accepted um, by the local market. Um, you know, we, as we a luxury brand. yeah, as a luxury brand, and you know, we we have the accreditation now as like you know as a proudly South African brand, which I am totally you know proud of mm -hmm. because you know to to, mm -hmm. to create a product end to end you know, within the continent is, is a huge feat. Mm -hmm. And to have that then translate on a global scale, I hope serves as inspiration for anyone out there who is, who is considering that their view on whatever they're creating can't get bigger. I, you know, I can tell you that I've seen, you know, Malay has been fe featured in L India. I've never even been to India before. <laughs> you know what wow. I mean? Like wow. there are things that, you know, as a result of the business, I have been able to do the most incredible things. I sit on the advisory board for the Cosmetics Global Summit. I have spoken in so many different places. And, you know, th this wasn't something that if you said to me at the beginning of the journey, you know, this is what it would look like for you 10, 11 mm. years later, I would have said, get out of here. And I, I made bold steps in between, you know, I invested in a manufacturing um, uh, facility at some point that went really bad. Um, and so I've, I've had to, you know, you also learn along the way, um, as beautiful as the store was working seven days a week almost killed me. Um, tough. Yeah. I, I couldn't, you know, and, and I also realized that actually I, I don't enjoy my business as a retail business. It just doesn't excite <laughs> me. So what was your first childhood memory about money? Okay. My first 
money memory was always questioning. I think um, I had the nickname, even though, mm-hmm. and I would always question, you know, when I would say, oh, I want this. And they'll be like, but you don't have any money. And I'll be like, even though I don't have the money, I can X or Y. <laughs> And, and, I, and I think I always never really respected the fact that money played a huge role um, in, <laughs> in life in that way. Ooh. Yeah. Or, or just, or, or just, I guess I would always find an alternative idea to not having money. Um, and that. so I think, I think in my business, what that has done has meant that I have built skills worth owning that are valuable um, it has also meant that I've had to be specific and meaningful. And also just my approach to money has always been, I, I would say to some extent, I haven't necessarily been obsessed by it. Like I, I knew going in, I didn't have the money. It took, you know, start Malay in, in the way that, you know, most beauty brands start. I didn't even, I had just enough money to actually make the products and pay a design uh, agency to create the logo and the design. But what I knew was the little money I had, I was going to make sure that the product was great. Um, And then beyond that, to where my money wasn't complete, Mm -hmm. I would find other ways of doing it that perhaps weren't traditional. So in, in my case, I chose to build my business off of um, a B2B relationship. So, um, selling to hotels, um, which meant I didn't have to have any press or PR or pay for marketing. It was based on relationship and, you know, service delivery and price. Um, so I think I've always, for when I haven't had money, I've always found creative Creative ways of making sure that that doesn't matter. Yeah. That that doesn't matter so much, you know, yes, it matters, but it doesn't define or limit my goals or my dreams in, in, in the way that. I think that's such an important message. Um, and I've never even really articulated it like that or tied it to. Ah, yeah. The the champion of doing it. (laughs) But it's amazing. Like, cause I, I feel the same way where I have a vision for something. I don't know how I'm going to get there. I don't know if I have enough resources to get there, but what matters is I can see the vision clearly um, and I will figure it out along the way. Like my, my mindset is I'll figure it out along the way. Right. It doesn't matter that I don't have all the, you know, the millions to do it the way that I want to do it, but I'll figure it out. And, and maybe that's even a really important lesson to pass on to our kids where we teach them that, you know, think big, take big risks. Don't necessarily worry about, oh, I don't have enough to um, do this or, you know, I don't I don't think I have, you know, the resources to complete this. But just go for it and figure it out. Problem solve as you go. Yeah, I, I, I think coming from a monetized society where people's, you know, self-worth is largely aligned to their to, net worth, to their, to their net worth um, I think for me, that's, know, some, that's something I've had to unlearn. Um, Do you know what's so interesting? Mm. I think that in Nigeria people's self-worth is not necessarily tied to their net worth. It's tied to their things. Well, <laughs> so I, I guess in, interchangeably, know. right? Like your yeah. things your things reflect yeah. what you can afford or what you seemingly have the disposable income to afford. Mm-hmm. Um, but also living in South Africa, I found that to be very clear in terms of, you know, you know having things signify you know, your standing. Well, it's like yeah. all of a sudden then you become an oga or you become yeah. anti because you're seemingly demonstrating, um, you know, wealth. I think I got advice from, um, from a, a successful entrepreneur a very long time ago, which was actually the best place to be is to always be underestimated um, mm. because there's value in, in you showing up and always exceeding people's expectations. So actually there's nothing wrong with walking into a room um, and and being underestimated because I think I had a huge issue with that, which was, you know, I'm I'm not walking in, um, you know, trying to look the part, right? I'm walking in as myself, I'm I'm pretty simple. You know, I like nice things, but you know, those things don't really define me. And, 
chances are, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm not the fashionista of the month, right? So, um, <laughs> so I think that in as much as it's important for us to to focus on our purpose and our value, it's extremely important for us to get in the habit of saying, yes, I am working to create value that I'm going to get paid for. And that has to be done in a measured way. That has, profit goals need to be set. Costs need to be um, weighed as, in context of what kind of revenue do I get from this activity? So I think we need to be careful about, you know, the narrative of I'm not doing it for, um, I'm not doing it for money. Yeah. So I, 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 I think, all the time. I, I think to be, to be clear, um, you know, for me, it's not, it's not a, I'm not doing it for money. Um, I think, you know, I opened with saying, you know, money is oxygen, right? Whether mm. you have that safety net with the profits in your business, with having a solid financial background with your family or whatever, those are the things that allow you to take the risks. Um, in my experience, I have found that if at the four, I am focusing a hundred percent of my attention just on the financial elements. It just doesn't work out. I make bad decisions. I make mm. short-term decisions. I make decisions that are not necessarily in line with my vision of long-term sustainability and the creation towards my goal. Now, if I am able to put that further behind and I can focus more on building the foundations of what it is that I need, now that doesn't diminish the fact that, you know, being able to run a successful business a decade later is a skill, requires work, requires mm -hmm. learning, requires failing and starting again requires making bad decisions requires learning mm. that being desperate or that quick buck that you thought was a quick buck ends up actually not being that and so all of those learning experiences i hope are you know things that people will take from from this episode and consider but notwithstanding, you know, my, my comment wasn't to sound flippant. Look, I wake up every day and, and bills are real. You know, <laughs> at the end of the month, you get an invoice. Um, but in my experience, I have found that having that at 100% being the focus does not make me make good decisions in the long term. Mm. Um, but if I'm able to ease the pressure off of, you know, the financial part of things, I am able to end up in a position where I'm able to keep to my vision and continue to work in a way that allows me to build the skills that my business needs for me to continue mm. to do what I'm doing and, you know, to still be here in 10 years time or, or build a legacy that I'm proud of. Um, but if every decision is a short term financial decision, then you, you almost erase the part of vision um, away from the entrepreneurship journey. That's just, that's just been my, 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 oh, yeah. my narrative. No, no, really. I think I, I, I relate to what you're saying in terms of like a taking short term, you know, financial decisions that are not necessarily in line with your overall vision. Um, and I find that when we do things like that, it's because we're coming from a place of fear. Like maybe something has happened and it's like, oh, let me quickly change my sales strategy. And then you're focused on, you know, the money, money, money. And you're not really, you know, growing the business or thinking about the bigger picture. Mm. So what would you say that your biggest, you know, money mistake has been? What's been your biggest failure when it comes to money? Um, um, ah, listening to other people, that's been mine. Uh, you know, when everyone starts to give you, ah, why don't you even do this one? And, you know, I know in my heart, that's not really something that, that matters to, to me do. or that I want to do, but it's seemingly the benchmark, right? So wanting to turn up to people's benchmarks and expectations of where you should actually be, especially in business, right? So it's yeah. like, uh, don't you have an office? Uh, how many people do you employ? I think those questions in the early days, especially when you're new into entrepreneurship, create insecurities. And then you find yourself chasing those numbers, right? So when people say, how many people you, do you employ? You know, 
there's this expectation ah, if you don't employ more than five people, how's your business big or how's what you're doing serious? Yeah. Um, and so my, my biggest mistakes have been wanting to turn up to, to those comments with an answer and trying to build my business towards, mm-hmm. towards those answers. And I think from a personal perspective, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm like, I'm pretty frugal when it comes to, to, you know, my personal expenses. Um, I think my, my mm-hmm. biggest luxuries are making my home comfortable. Lovely. I think um, it's interesting that you say that because there's a lot of comparison, even in business. Sometimes when we think about, oh, stay in your lane, um, don't compare yourself to other people. We're talking about it on a pers- personal level, like in a personal context. Right. But we, I think that we don't talk enough about, you know, all the things that we do in business beca- because other people have said do this or everybody. So people feel like, oh, I have to have an, an office, like a really nice office because I'm an entrepreneur now and I'm do, in a trendy industry. And I don't know, it's, it's weird for me. I've always, I've always found it um, interesting because I, and this is back to the money thing, right? Where I always ask myself, is this um, decision cosmetic or does it affect the bottom line um directly right so do i need a fancy office for what the kind of work that i'm doing Mm. right now do you get what i mean as opposed to oh everybody everybody has an office so it's not a real business as if i don't have a building with 50 people in it and i think that's the insecurity in the beginning right i can tell you Mm. for free the first business plan i wrote on malay actually didn't have a retail store included like i was never going Mm. to own retail store but then i would have enough conversations and enough comments that made me feel like uh but the only way people would see me or take me seriously and 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 don't get me wrong like i i eventually you know re rehashed my business model to create that and and the store did create value but nonetheless you know i took on that was a huge cost um running a retail store between the rental the staffing keeping up with you know the marketing activities etc and so that experience for me um was also a learning experience around actually i don't need to turn up to people's comments because those comments create an insecurity right it's like You don't have an office. You start to doubt your vision. You start to doubt the decisions that you, or the steps that you planned to take to get to a certain point. And you start listening to the other voices that people have planted in your head. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, 10 years in now, I, I can I can comfortably say, you know, those things don't really matter to me. You know, I, I became a mom uh, two years ago and I made the decision that actually I wanted to be around more. So I will work from home more. And mm. so... I had an office, but the office didn't serve me anymore. You know, my life had changed in such a way that actually my work doesn't require me to sit at an office. Um, Mm. There's no value in doing it anymore. Um, And so just also having the comfort to, to change your, 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 your structure, right. To suit you. Because Mm. I think the positives of entrepreneurship is that you are trying to create an optimum self and business, right? At, at all times. And so what do you need to do to create that for you? And, and life does show up, right? Like if you are a visionary led business and your business relies largely with you turning up for most small to medium sized businesses, that is the requirement. And so that means that in some ways, your personal life and your professional life have to complement each other in, in, in some way. And so I found that actually not trying to make the sacrifices or create a version because of those comments um, serves, me, serves me better. So what is, your, what is your investment strategy, especially now that you're a mother and you have new um, priorities? Do you feel like your investment strategy has changed the way that you make investment decisions um, has have been altered by the fact that you become a mother. A hundred percent. So you know, I've I've done things like I've created a will 
Um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> before becoming a parent, I didn't have a will. Um, but I now have a will, um, also thinking about her future and, and ways of investing in her future early on. Um, so she has, um, uh, they, they call them ISAs in the UK, um, but she has an ISA. Um, and so I, th- I think becoming a parent, you also start to recognize and, and also seeing your peers, right, who have had opportunities slightly different from you, where you hope to close the gap for your children and, and how you intend on doing that. So, you know, I worked throughout university and I had part-time jobs. As a result of having those part-time jobs, I was able to buy my first car, pay for my car insurance, you know, go on nights out with my friends. Um, yeah. Now, do I want my daughter to have that experience? Probably not, you know, because I also know how at times stressful that felt and how polarizing that felt. And, you know, there was a part of me that loved the independence, right? A friend of mine, you know, Mm. we used to talk about it. I, you know, I could afford to go get my nails done. I could go to the hairdressers. Like we had a routine and we were living in air quotes, an adult life, right? Um, (laughs) Because we were able to generate an income. I, I honestly thought at the time, you know, I was, very independent. And I was an adult because I didn't need to ask my parents for extra pocket money if I needed to make any decisions. You know, I remember my first paycheck. Um, I worked um, as a Christmas uh, temp at Faith Shoes in the stock room. <laughs> so, you know, then they used to walkie talkie. And uh, please, can I get uh, item number? They'll call the, the code. Because I think a lot of nights out at uni, I would be coming from work and changing and going out or whatever. Um, (laughs) But essentially, I would, that's what I did. And my first paycheck, I remember I bought myself a three disc CD changer, a DVD player. And I felt really proud about owning those things, right? So I think you know, fast forward to to the version of me now as an adult to answer your question. Instead, I'm researching ISAs and, you know, pension (laughs) plans and, and, and things like that now. And also deliberately thinking of, you know, what can I do to maximize my income? What can I do as a result of maximizing that? Yes, to improve my current um, lifestyle standards, but also how can that play a part in my future? You know, we're at an age now we have to start thinking of retirement, um, Mm -hmm. because the sooner we are able to turn up, um, for, for that sort of planning, you know, the chances, the, the more of a likelihood that you can continue to keep the same standard of living till, till, till you pass on. Right. And also have something worthwhile that your children can benefit from, because I think what's very clear and also just watching my European friends is that there's no expectation, you know, even in their adulthoods, their parents are still showing up for them. Um, you know, there's this expectation in, our cultures, you know, we give back to the parents, but actually, Mm. you know, there's, there's something in watching a different culture be in a place where actually the, the thinking is that the parents do as much as they can so that the children are set up for the future and even better. So there's no, there's no, you know, maybe you buy your parents a treat, you know, a nice yeah. gift or, but there's but no. It's not like you're looking after them for the rest of it. You're not their retirement plan. Exactly. It's actually interesting because I feel like um, for me, those are two extremes and the goal is to find, you know, the balance, right? Because I get what you mean. Like a lot of my European friends, they're still, um, you know, looked after to a certain extent by their parents. Like, so maybe you get married and your parents, you know, give you like um, a property or yeah. your first child already has a stock portfolio mm-hmm. um, before they're born, that kind of thing. And it's great, right? But I, th- and I feel like African parents are more like, we've already paid your school fees, go and walk, go and find a way to become a success like in life right and the goal is for you to come back and 
you know, look after them, right? Because and, of all the sacrifices that they've made. Yeah, but but also very, very very few, very but but also very few of them give you the tools to even really be able to come back and do that outside of the mm. stories, right, that you're, you're told. So you're also left with the task of having to figure out how you also adult for yourself and come back an adult for, for the adults in your life. Mm. Well, to be fair, like, I feel like my parents were always from the beginning, our money is our money. We're only going to pay your school fees. You have to go and work and become successful. But to be fair to them, like, there was never the expectation that we would come and, you know, look after them. Like, but it's a very African thing. It's a very, it's a very African, for, for majority of Africans, yeah. you have children so that they can be your retirement plan. And then I guess it goes into that whole black tax thing where young adults are now out of, they, they come out the gates and they already have financial problems because They've carried. They're carrying a cost burden that um, that their small incomes or their starter salaries cannot support. So they're in debt very early because they have to pay back, you know, their parents, which is mm-hmm. not, you know, great. But then on the other end of the spectrum, Zeze, we also have to be honest. There's some people who have been given the tools and you know the mm-hmm. property and all of that um, to succeed, and it's nice, right? But I think that to a certain extent, um, there's also a large proportion of those people who are now not really functional adults, right? So it's like, I've never had to work for anything. So I'm not even yeah. sure that. Why would I already have like all these assets? Like, yeah. what's the point? Yeah. Right? So, but to I, be fair, there are also mm-hmm. still people who are from that kind of privilege who are like, I'm going to create... Um, a big impact in this world. I'm going to come yeah. up with a product or a solution, yeah. you know, to solve a problem and do it big. And I have the privilege of doing this because I'm financially settled. I don't have to worry about money. So yeah. I can worry about impacting, you know, the world in a big, yeah. in a big way. Yeah. So I think it's, for me, it's about balance. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think one of the privileges yeah. I have is, you know, I, I don't have to worry about my parents. Right. And, and as mm. they age, they have made financial provisions for themselves. So I'm in a position where I can now focus on myself and my, my, you know, my children and providing for them, you know, if I had to include, you know, also the responsibility of providing for aged parent or aging parents, you know, that totally Mm. will affect my decision-making 120%. It would affect even just the risks that I take in business, right? Perhaps maybe, you know, I I would feel the pressure to be in a stable income job um, that would allow me to meet those expenses. So I I think with, with everything, um, what is clear is that we're all in this, our parents, us are all in this to hopefully try and do better than, than the generation before us. So most definitely, most definitely how, um, so you've recently become a single mother. Mm. Um, so, and because I'm a single mother myself, um, I feel like they're very, specific things that we have to deal with mm-hmm. um, when it comes to managing our personal finances. So what well, actually before we go into that, right, would you did you have money conversations with your ex-husband before you got married? Or did those conversations start when you got married? Um I think we 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 always had very sort of top level conversations i think it was you know clear we're both young right people who didn't you know he was older than me but you know he was been he'd been in a career um but you know th- there wasn't too much to talk about if that makes sense um mm-hmm. i had just finished my masters you know there weren't you know huge assets involved and you know businesses built and all of that i think a lot of that was done within the marriage. Um, we would have, you know, top level discussions around what we were building and how we saw that impacting us and our future. Um, 
but I guess for myself, I would say I, I never took the the front row seat on a personal perspective because it was always a collective pot in my mind. Um, mm. And it was only until um, my marriage broke down and I'm now having to, to then, one, you're dealing with, you know, the emotions and all of that. But at the same time, you're also being faced with some of the biggest financial decisions that you're having to make that have a long-term impact, not just on you, but also on on your children. Um, mm. And so then you're, you're now thrust into the driving seat, right, of not just your own financial future, but also your child's financial future. Um and so that is a completely different place to, you know, being a co-pilot um, <laughs> with someone um, yeah. and then now being actually the only driver. So I think for me, um, to answer your question, yes, there were there were always conversations, um, but the tone of that conversation changes drastically when when you're now <laughs> having it alone with yourself, right? And, and yeah. then you, you're having to forward plan with fail safes um, against your health um, because now all of a sudden those instances come to the fore, right? So you're now thinking if something happens to me, how is my child going to be taken care of? Especially if your child is, you know, living primarily with one parent more than the other parent. Um, and so you now start to figure out, okay, how do I build my tribe around me? That means that, you know, your child is also getting exactly all of the things that you need, the, the proper care, the, you know, and, and you also don't want um, your child to feel disadvantaged as a result of, you know, a marriage not working out in, in the longer term. Um, and so all of those things now come to the fore and are, are, are big, you know, things to tackle, um, on your own versus when, you know, there were things that you would tackle as a team and you always knew, okay, if I didn't mm -hmm. do it, this person can do, you know, and then, you know, those are things that start, that, that start to change. Um, and so then you start to have more in-depth conversations with, you know, accountants, your bank, your bank representative, <laughs> you start to look at bank solutions, you start to think of, okay, perhaps maybe I need to think of how I'm, you know, putting my money in my accounts now differently, because, you know, that makes a difference. Perhaps you stop being so lax with, you know, paying for business expenses on your personal account, because actually, you know, the pressure is on there, you know, because every penny now starts to count because there's no safety net. Okay. So for me, the biggest difficult thing about, you know, being a single mother is basically mm -hmm. your views evolve <laughs> as you go along. Right. So when I first started on this <laughs> accidental journey, um, I think it was a pride thing. Um, you think, please, I'm not going to ask for help. I can do this myself. I just want peace. I don't want to, you know, have to ask for things and um, I'll do it by myself, mm. right? But after a while, I realized, mm. sis, nobody's giving you prizes. There's no medal for... Yeah, there's no medal for uh, suffering. Exactly. There's no me medal for using all of your disposable income as in to look after your child to prove that you're an independent woman. They don't give prizes for it. When the child has grown up, they love their mother and their father the same, right? Especially in this era of I'm independent, I'm independent, right? Mm -hmm. Like sometimes we can get carried away and you realize that you're spending a lot of your disposable income to prove that you're yeah, a strong, independent woman instead of, you know, realizing that two people gave birth to this child. Yeah. Two people but, are financing. But I think, but I think some of that comes from um, wanting to prove also society and everybody else that, you know, you're capable because I think, you know, unfortunately there's a duality um, or a double standard mm. for women who are coming out of their marriages or even widows, right? Like there's a double standard, like you and I had this conversation about this expectation about, you know, you're not supposed to survive it. You're supposed to be living in a shack, dying, 
right? Like mm-hmm. that, that is, that is the societal expectation. And so you, yeah. you come out of it really wanting to prove everybody wrong, right? Because you also want to show that, you know, you are capable. Um, and notwithstanding, most times, I think it's also the voices that have been left in your head from, you know, whether you want to call them well-meaning people or people who don't mean well. I think for me, just to round up, what I would say Mm -hmm. to, first of all, women who are married, um, don't wait for something to happen because for some people it's divorce, for some people it's my husband lost his job, as in Mm -hmm. we're in our 40s, or for some people is he died Mm-hmm. Don't wait to be at the forefront of your personal finances. Um, a challenge. Don't wait yeah. till something happens to be at the mm-hmm. forefront of your personal finances. Like you need to ask questions, even if you're not the breadwinner. You need to know what's going on with health insurance, with with debts, with you know how we're earning, what we're investing in, what does. What is the family's financial fortune? Because you just never know. And I think it's important for women to also like ma- know how to manage their own personal finances, right? Outside of the families, building their own assets outside of the families, because we all came into this world as individuals and we're all going mm. to be like individuals. So mm. we need to know the difference between our individual selves and the collective um, because bo- both are because both are important, but I feel like women also need to start looking out out for themselves, so that we don't start sounding like victims when you know something happens. If you're not married yet, I think if I had to tell my twenty something year old self something would be, you know, ask questions, right? Like you need, even if it you can't, you don't get married by questionnaire, but I. Now, as I've gotten older, I find it hilarious that we don't have enough conversations about, you know, money before we make um, lifetime commitments. So Mm. even if a person doesn't have anything to rub together, does not matter. Still ask questions. Like you want to understand people's attitudes, even something as simple as, you know, how we allocate our limited resources. So for Mm -hmm. example, if I think that education, my child's education is a priority, Mm -hmm. um, there's some people who will say, oh no, that school is so expensive, right? But but they spend the exact amount of money on upper class tickets or popping bottles Mm -hmm. in club, and they don't see that as a waste of money, but expensive education is a waste of and, money. And I think there's also uh, there's also single parents in in relationships, right? Seemingly <laughs> <laughs> single parents in relationships. Um, I'd love to share um, this quote by a lady called Elizabeth Kubler Ross, um, and she says, "The most beautiful people we have known are those who have known defeat, known suffering, known struggle." known loss and have found their way out of the depths. These persons have an appreciation, a sensitivity and an understanding of life that fills them with compassion, gentleness and a deep loving concern. Beautiful people do not just happen. I and so much. I share that because no matter where you are in your journey, whether that you are in debt and you're trying to find your way out, you're in a good relationship, you're in a bad job, in whatever, I think the pressure to turn up in this millennial world, a perfect version of yourself does exist. Um, And also just to remember that that really doesn't happen without challenges. Mm. Thank you so much, Zeze. I think that this is such this was such a powerful conversation. Um Thank you for having me. I think people are going to really enjoy it. Thank you so, so, so much for being on the podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much. Zeze's podcast, Third Culture Africans. It is so dope. Yeah, I'm sure you'll put the handle and the handles and everything when you when you when you share and post. So I will, I will. But where can they reach you? 
Um, so Malay is at maleeonline.com. So M-A-L-E-E online.com. Um, on social media, it's at maleeonline.com, at Malay. So M-A-L-E-E online. Um, you can find me at Zeza online. So zedizediconline.com. Um, and social media at Zeza online underscore. Um, and then third culture Africans at third culture Africans. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Smart Money Tribe podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm super excited about creating financial content for African millennial women who want to live a fabulous life, but also want to learn how to find the balance between spending on their lifestyle needs and building assets that could protect their financial futures.